This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Epsigon. This week, we look at the best of 2020. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 81. Hi everyone, I'm Jeremy Daly and this is Serverless Chats. On this week's special episode, I'm gonna share some of my favorite moments from the episodes of 2020. Now there were so many amazing guests this year, so much serverless knowledge that was shared that this was a really difficult but also a really fun task just to see how much has changed in just one year with serverless. Now I know that this has been a really difficult year for so many people and so many people have been touched by the global pandemic but one thing that I think was great about this year was just how much progress was made with serverless. So I wanna go back and start at the very beginning, the first episode I did, episode number 30 with James Bezik. And we were talking about what is serverless going to look like in 2020, and I asked him, is this going to be the year for serverless? Yeah, it's it's really snowballing in terms of popularity and certainly seeing just the sheer number of people from all these different companies, you know, startups and enterprises and so many different types of industry all starting to pick up serverless tools. And the, a lot of the things that we talked about just a year ago that really seem incredibly long time ago now, they're conversations that don't really necessarily matter that much anymore. There was, a dis- there was a discussion about what is serverless and all these sorts of things. And now we're starting to talk about architectural patterns yes. and starting to talk about how it's not just Lambda anymore. Serverless is this concept of taking different services from different providers and combining them. So I think, you know, we see people building things where you connect API Gateway, DynamoDB, S3, but also with services like Stripe or with Auth0. And then Lambda is just connecting things in the middle. So there's just a lot changing the way people are building very sophisticated applications at scale. And I think it's finally gone through that tipping point where it's becoming generally adopted. So James mentions this idea of the tipping point. Well, at reInvent 2020, Andy Jassy said in his keynote that 50% of all new applications that are built on AWS are using Lambda, which sounds like 50% is a pretty good tipping point, right? The other thing he mentioned was that serverless is for everyone, that whether you're a startup or you're an enterprise, all these different companies, all these different size companies are using that. So on episode number 57, I spoke with Sven Al-Hamad and I asked him what were the benefits of serverless for both small companies and big companies? So when you're a small business, it's the the cost of infrastructure that really matters to you because it's really efficient. You don't pay if you're not using it. But for the big guys, it's it's a combination of factors. Um, and sure, your bill might be slightly higher in some cases running on serverless, uh, the cost of infrastructure. But the cost of managing infrastructure will go way down. You will have to hire less people or the people you have will have to spend less hours working there. But also what that does, it releases a big chunk of the budget or resources or man hours that you can now focus on product iterations. So your product can grow faster. And if your product grows faster, you can out-innovate potentially your competitors, which can't afford that same level of innovation, right? So what I see with enterprises is that they see serverless as a competitive advantage. 
And that's why they're moving to serverless. Although like you see all the blog posts about cost savings and stuff like that. Yes, that's true, but there's that agenda of outpacing my competitor, which serverless actually unlocks. And the moment you migrate to serverless, you can use that potential. So I really love this idea of being able to outpace or out-innovate your competition because that's what serverless does. It allows you to move faster and build more things and build them more quickly and get things to market faster. Now that has been my experience. That's been the experience of all these different people that I've spoken to. But one of the things that we always butt up against in serverless applications is trying to scale our data. And there really is no better way, at least in my opinion, to scale your data than to use something like DynamoDB. But you always get these questions of like, well, if I'm just a small startup, do I really want to go with NoSQL because maybe I don't need that scale? Or if you're a really, really big enterprise, you say, well, we can't, we can't trust our data with something like DynamoDB. Uh, it just, you know, it's not, it's not Oracle or something like that. Well, on episodes 34 and 35, I had a great conversation with Rick Houlihan, which again, I suggest you go and check those out. Uh, really, really great episodes, lots of information that Rick shared. But we talked about this idea of whether or not my company was too small for DynamoDB or too big for DynamoDB. And here's what he said. I mean, I get the question of, you know, uh... It, it, is DynamoDB powerful enough for my app? Well, absolutely. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's the most scaled out NoSQL database in the world. Nothing does anything like what Dy Dy DynamoDB is delivered. I, I know single tables delivering over 11 million WCUs. You know, it, it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and then the other question is, is not DynamoDB too much overkill? For the application that I'm building, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I think we have great examples across the CDO of services. Not every one of our services is massively scaled out. Hell, I've got services out there. I got five gigabytes of data, right? Yeah. So, and and they're all using DynamoDB. And the reason why I used to think that NoSQL was the domain of the large, scaled out, high performance application, but with cloud native NoSQL, when you look at the consumption based pricing and the pay per use and auto scaling and on demand. I, I just think you'd be crazy if you have an OLTP application, you'd be crazy to deploy on anything else yeah. because you know, you're just going to pay a fraction of the cost. I mean, literally, whatever that EC2 instance costs you, I will charge you 10% to run the same workload on DynamoDB. So I totally agree with Rick Houlihan here. I don't care how big your business is, whether you're a startup or you're a large enterprise, I think you're crazy to deploy on anything other than DynamoDB. Because if you're a small company, there's a lot of flexibility there and it can grow with you. If you're a large company, it's going to be able to handle that scale. But there is some learning curve to DynamoDB. And one of those things is understanding single table designs and how things like item collections work and partition keys and that sort of stuff. So on episode 44, I spoke with Alex Debris. He had just released his new book, the DynamoDB book, which I totally suggest you go and check out if you're interested in DynamoDB modeling. Um, but on that episode, he gave a really, really good sort of a, a, a mental model for thinking about item collections and how single Single table design works. Here's how he explains it. Yeah, I introduced the concept of item co collections and their importance pretty early on. I think it's in chapter two. And it was actually one of the solutions architects at AWS named Pete Naylor that, that turned me onto this and, and really sort of uh, made, made me key into its importance. But the idea behind item collections is you're writing all these items into DynamoDB. Records are called items in DynamoDB. And all the items that have the same partition key are going to be grouped together in the same partition into, into what's called an item collection. And you can do different operations on those item collections, including reading a bunch of those items in a single request. So 
as you're handling these different access patterns, what you're doing is you're basically just creating these different item collections that handle your access patterns. And that can be a join-like access pattern. If you want to have a parent entity and some related entities in a one-to-many or many-to-many relationship, you can model those into a into an item collection and, and fetch all those in one request. You can also handle different filtering mechanisms within an item collection. You can handle specific sorting requirements within an item collection. But you really need to think about, hey, what I'm doing is I'm building these item collections to handle my access patterns specifically. So single table design in DynamoDB is not an easy thing to grasp right from the beginning. You do have to do a little bit of research. You do have to study a little bit. So I suggest checking out Alex's book, the DynamoDB book. Check out episode 44 with Alex Debris. Check out episodes 34 and 35 with Rick Houlihan. A lot of information in there about single table design and how that works. But the thing to remember about DynamoDB and serverless in general is you don't have to just build an entire application in that. You can actually use this to sort of, uh, you know, to create these hybrid applications or to, to sort of tack it onto your application that can get some of those benefits of serverless without replacing your entire backend. So on episode 79, I spoke with Angela Tomofte from Trustpilot, and she explained how they use DynamoDB to take pressure off of their database. This is a really great pattern. Check out how she explained it. So... The, the scenario was that uh, we have, um, so people can sign up, uh, but then they have to activate their account. And that's quite uh, like a normal scenario, right? Um, so they have to activate, and if they don't activate in like 30 days, then we need to delete the account. Um, and we're doing that in our only Mongo database for where we're keeping all the data for uh, consumers. Um, and of course, we're putting uh, a lot of load, unnecessary load on our primary database. Uh, so we decided to actually take this entire scenario out and we uh, we started, okay, using events when a consumer will sign up, we'll send an event to store some data in a DynamoDB, which would say this uh, consumer uh, sign up and then we'll have another event coming from the activate like the the activation api uh saying this consumer activated so then we'll delete the data in this dynamodb and we had one dynamodb with all the unactivated accounts and then from there we could look at um like when the account was created and we can delete uh, whatever accounts that are not uh, activated in time. Uh, so this way we took that whole like, pipeline uh, to, to serverless in its own context and you know, like its own uh, service and then doing its thing there separate from our primary data. Um, and we did it with like two events and DynamoDB uh, and then yeah, another Lambda that was uh, listening to was uh, querying this uh, database. Uh, so it was a very simple scenario, but we took a lot of load from the main database by not going like every, I think it was like every day would um, query the, the database to get like all unactivated uh, accounts. Uh, so uh, yeah, it was a very simple uh, scenario, but like this just shows how you don't have to like, uh, 
like refactor your whole database, you can just take parts of it or like queries, like whatever, like this was like just a scenario and we took it out in its own thing. It's doing its uh, thing. I haven't checked it in like a very long time because it's just working, you know. Uh, now I'm thinking maybe I should go <laughs> and check it. Um, no, but like that's like one one example where, as I said, like you don't have to refactor the entire thing. You can just take part of it. So this idea of being able to use serverless and serverless components in order to shore up an existing piece of your system, right, without having to refactor your entire application, I think is really powerful. And it's a great on-ramp for companies to start bringing serverless into their organization and start to make their systems more resilient. But there are still things that are holding companies back. And on episode 33, I spoke with Yen Trey, also known as the Burning Monk, and asked him whether or not serverless needed some sort of big innovation or what else might be holding people back? This is what he said. Um, I don't know about the uh, major breakthrough, uh, but I definitely think uh, more education and more guidance, not just in terms of uh, what these features do, but also when to use them and how to choose between different event triggers. Mm -hmm. And that's a question I get all the time. How do I decide when to use API Gateway versus uh, ALB? How do I choose between SNS, SQS, Kinesis, DynamDB Streams, EventBridge, IoT Core? That's just six application integration services <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, there's just no guidance around any of that stuff. And it's, it's really difficult for at least someone new coming into this space to understand all the ins and outs of you know, what are the trade-offs uh, between SNS and SQS and Kinesis and so on. Um, so having more education around that, having more, sort of more official guidance uh, from AWS around that, that would be really useful. Um, in terms of technology-wise, I think I like the, the, the trajectory that uh, AWS has been on. No sort of no flashy new things, but mm -hmm. rather uh, continuously solving those day-to-day -day annoyances, the day-to-day -day problems that people run into. The whole cold star thing, um, again, often overplayed, often underplayed. Yes, is 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 never as good as some people say. It's never as bad as some other people say. Um, but having some solutions for people with, with real problems with co-stars because of various different reasons. Uh, I really like what they've done with provision concurrency, even if I think the implementation is still, I guess it's a version one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so hopefully some of the kinks that they currently have uh, would be, would be uh, solved. Um, other than that, I'd like to see them do more with the some multi-account uh, management side of things. Account so a control tower is great, uh, but again, there's a lot of you know, clicking stuff in the console yeah. to get anything set up. Uh, and uh, it's it's also very easy to, to rack up a pretty big bill if you're not careful. Mm -hmm. It provisions a lot of and, uh, and, uh, net gateway, for example, uh, and uh, things like that. And one of the companies I've been talking to recently as well, a, a Dutch bank called uh, Money U, they actually built some, re some really cool tool themselves to essentially give you uh, infrastructure as code uh, think of it as a CloudFormation extension that yeah. allows you to capture your entire org. Uh, you, you know, oh, nice. So imagine I have a resource type that defines my org and then different accounts, and then the, be able to configure CloudTrail setup for multi-account, uh, configure security guard and things like that, all within my uh, my sort of template, which looks just like CloudFormation. So some really amazing tool that those guys have built but having something like that uh, from AWS uh, would be would be you know, would be pretty amazing as well because again we're seeing more and more people 
getting to the point where they, you know, they have a very complex ecosystem of lots of different AWS accounts, uh, managing them and setting up the right things, this, uh, uh, the, the SCPs and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, it's, it's not easy. And it, we certainly don't want people to be constantly going to the console and clicking things. So yes, it is really difficult to understand all of the different services that these cloud providers have, how they all work together, what their limitations are. So education is huge, and we as a community, as well as these cloud providers, have to do more to continue to educate people. But at the end of the day, you just have to go ahead and start learning these things and and being able to implement them in a way that is most effective for you and your organization. But while we're on the topic of education, I want to go back to episode number 37. So I spoke with Dr. Peter Sparsky, and we were talking about the state of serverless education and just where we were with online learning versus in-person learning, what colleges were teaching versus what a cloud guru was teaching and other online platforms were teaching. Um, And it was a really great conversation. But this was an interesting moment where we were talking about the value of in-person education versus the value of remote education um, and whether or not, you know, whether or not in-person education was a necessary thing, especially in, in universities. And I think that's going to be what makes education effective in the future. It's that curated, personalized education. And like, you know, you spoke about a cloud guru. We have full-time training architects, instructors, who what they do every day, right, is they create content. And whenever anything changes, they update it, right? So there's this constant. So when you go to the platform, you know that what you're getting is the latest version, and you're getting mm-hmm. kind of that latest best practice. So suddenly, you know, what you are learning in a lecture hall, right, it doesn't really match what you could be learning online because that content is much more up to date. So that's kind of interesting, um, an interesting aspect as well. Yeah, that currency and the quality. Yeah, yeah because we can, we can continuously iterate on it. You know, I think that universities do have an important function that cannot be done with just an online delivery of education. And that element is really that, it's going to sound harsh, but it's babysitting, right? Because, you know, just after you finish school, right, there's still a little bit of time for a lot of people to mature, right? They need to go for that maturation phase. And going to university, going to college allows people to do that, right? It allows them to build social connections. It allows them to learn how to work in a team, Um, maybe better than they did at school. So it gives them that opportunity uh, to mature before they go into the industry. And, you know, as much as I love online education, and I think it is the future, there is that element that still needs to be solved, that social element. Um, But I think, you know, we will figure things out. Maybe it will be some kind of like blended learning um, where you do get that up-to-date curated you know, delivery of education online, and then there's an additional element um, where you go and you socialize with your peers. So yeah, we'll see how all of that pans out. So this episode was recorded before the pandemic and everything shut down. So if you're a parent and you have kids that are either, you know, hybrid or remote learning, I'm sure you have a ton of opinions on this. I just thought it was a really interesting take, uh, you know, that is for college students more so and and, and continuing education, um, but just an interesting take on what the value of having in-person learning is and, and how maybe remote learning can can certainly uh, complement that, but maybe not, uh, not replace it entirely. 
entirely. So I want to move on to climate change. And on episodes number 59 and 60, I spoke with Paul Johnston, and we had a whole conversation about going green with serverless. And we got into this discussion about, you know, is it really more efficient for you to own your own data center because maybe it's cheaper? Or is it better for the planet for you to move to the cloud for one and to, and to move to something like serverless? I mean, in the end, I mean, I know that I know the joke is, you know, cloud is just other people's servers and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's just it's it, it's always underneath it. There's just servers and there's just servers. But I think that, you know, trying trying to make these servers more efficient, trying to make these data centers more efficient. There is there is still constant churn. There's, you know, we don't we don't keep things efficient. You know, two, three years down the line, the the, the server that you were using is not efficient. It's six years, seven years, it's it's old. You don't want to be running stuff on there. You want to be running stuff on something that's that's efficient and new. And actually, there's an enormous amount of uh, waste, you know, e-waste in terms of you know the the data center industry, and it's not it's not straightforward. You know, the conversations around all of this are not straightforward. So I think in terms of, I think everyone needs to start thinking about moving to the cloud simply before simply because we need to we need to be reducing our um impact and if you're running stuff i think it's important to be able to go actually we need to be able to reduce the amount we run you know but that means understanding how that cloud that you're choosing to work with is working in terms of its sustainability you know so you can't just go oh we'll, we'll move it to X cloud and X cloud, whoever, you know, or Y cloud or Z cloud, or whoever it is. And, um, but we'll trust them to do the right thing. You've got to still have that relationship. You've got to still be able to go that, that cloud, you, Mr. Mr. Cloud person or Mrs. Cloud person, you, you've got to tell me, you know, which are you using green electricity? Are you using renewables? How are you disposing of everything? What is your supply chain? How I think that conversation over the next few years is actually going to become a much more common conversation. It's going to become more important. You know, you are you are not going to be able to get away with, you know, we just run efficient data centers. That's not going to be the the um the standard and, and reasonable response. That's going to be, you know, a table stakes. You know, green green data center will be a table stakes conversation and the 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 best practice will be well we're actually running 100% renewables and we're putting more you know into the grid and we're we're being as good a partner as we possibly can and all of that we got batteries we haven't got diesel generators we've got batteries you know it's all of that conversation that i think comes back to you. so in terms of and and maybe we will end up you know not using certain companies because their data centers are are not green uh, enough and maybe that is you know where we end up that actually societal pressure actually pushes these companies to do better but i don't think we're there yet i think we're, we're probably a couple of years away from two or three four away from that so this episode was recorded just a few months ago, and at reInvent 2020, they announced the acceleration of their timeline to make their data centers green by 2025 or 2030 or something like that. Um, but it, it's good to see these big companies are starting to move in that direction and make sure that we are going to have efficient data centers much sooner um, you know, rather than later. 
Now, if you're a company building applications and you're not moving to the cloud yet, really think about it because it's not just about saving money, but it's also about potentially saving the planet. And I think that's a lofty goal that we should all strive for. All right, so I wanna move on to microservices now. So back in episode 42, I spoke with Susanna Kaiser and we were talking about building better serverless microservices using domain-driven design. Domain-driven design's been around for a while, fascinating topic, but we were talking about the bounded context and applications. And I just thought this was a really, really good way to think about why building microservices and why having these bounded contexts is really important. Um, a domain model cannot exist without a boundary, then that's uh, where we come to bounded context. And a bounded context um, provides different types of boundaries for a domain model. So it forms, it could form a consistency boundary around the domain model and put, protects its integrity. And um, it could also, could also form a linguistic and semantic boundary so that the language's terms um, are only consistent inside uh, of its bounded context. So, for example, pending in one bounded context could be a different, uh, uh, could, could, could have a different meaning than another bounded context, for example. And it also serves as a ownership boundary. So, for example, bounded context uh, could be implemented and evolved and maintained by one team only. And a single team can, on the other hand, can also own multiple bounded contexts, but it's really, really relevant that not multiple teams are working on the same bounded context. Because this enables autonomous teams working at their bounded context independently at their own pace and with minimal impact across other teams. And it also serves as a physical boundary and uh, can be implement, implemented as a separate solution and can be deployed independently as separate artifacts and also enables separate data storage stores, which are not accessible by other bounded contexts. And uh, for example, also the source code could of each bounded context can be maintained in separate Git repositories with their own CI CD pipeline. So this idea of building loosely coupled components that can scale independently, can have separate teams working on them, and that can have their own context in which the team working on it understands the language and the business rules within that single component is a really powerful way to build applications. But when you start to deploy these microservices into the cloud, there's often some confusion about how you structure that. What do you do for accounts? Do you have a de development account? Do you have a production account? Well, on episode number 65, I spoke with Holly Mesrobian, and she explained exactly how AWS recommends structuring your accounts for microservices and different environments. Yes, so we recommend using a separate account per microservice, and then also thinking about an account for each of your environments as well, your pre-production environment and your prod environment. Uh, each, each one should have its own account as well. And what that does for you, if you think about it, a lot of times uh, two pizza teams own a service or a small set of microservices and you want to reduce the number of people who can actually access um, those services and make changes. I mean, it's, it's an operational risk. It's also a security risk having too many people have their hands on a microservice. You really wanna make sure that the people who can access it um, are knowledgeable and know what they're doing and that will help you have a high availability as well as ensuring uh, security and and you know of course availability comes back to um, not only some you know potential for someone to make a change that is, is a breaking change but also things like uh, ensuring that your limits are used in a way that and planned for in a way that makes sense for you. 
So that's it. That's the advice. One microservice per AWS account. You get all of that security isolation. You get all of that separate billing, all of the controls over limits of the individual services. You get all of the access control and you can still communicate across accounts to communicate between your microservices. So that's the advice. All right, let's talk about data again. So we talked about DynamoDB a little bit, but I wanna talk about just this idea of migrating data or trying to scale data in the cloud. So on episode 36, I spoke with Supatra Rufo and we talked about the challenges of migrating data. Yeah, you know, and I think this is where, um, this is where things get really interesting. You know, when I was at AWS, I worked almost exclusively on migrations off of Oracle and Azure to AWS. And a database migration is by and large the most difficult thing that you can do in cloud computing. Um, it's really hard. You've got to do a lot of data modeling. You've got to do um, uh, your schema conversions. I mean, it's it's really um, it's really a, just a ton of work. And what I have found is that when people are charged with, all right, we got to migrate our database, um, they tend to do it in multiple phases and that will take multiple years. So oftentimes they'll first just rehost. So let's say they're on Oracle, they want to get off Oracle, but they don't want to be penalized. Um, so they just kind of take their Oracle license and bring it to a different cloud provider and they keep all their data with Oracle still. Um, they're just kind of moving it. So um, then afterwards, and that takes six months to a year, and then afterwards they say, okay, well, I think we're going to um, now we're going to replatform, and then that's a whole nother workload, and that's even more work. Um, and the harder down the line is rehosting, which is where they might actually, excuse me, refactoring, which is where my, they might actually go from a relational database to a NoSQL database. Um, it's much more rare that you see people do a database migration where they go from a traditional relational database on one provider to a NoSQL database on another provider, because it's a really difficult piece of work. So if you've ever had to migrate a massive amount of data, you know it is really difficult. It takes a lot of planning and it just takes a lot of time. And the big thing is, is you don't wanna make a mistake. You wanna move this into a system that's going to be able to continue to support the growth. Probably the reason why you migrated off of it in the first place. Well, on episode 39, I spoke with Lynn Langett and we were talking about just this idea of serverless and big data and what some of those options are. But this was an interesting moment we had where we discussed why traditional systems and why databases that you typically would think might scale don't scale. Well, it goes to the um, CAP theorem, which is consistency, availability, and partitioning. This is sort of classic database uh, uh, like what are the capabilities of a database? So, and it, it's really kind of common sense. A, a database can have two of the three, but not all three. Mm -hmm. So you can have um, basically uh, the ability for um, transactions, um, which is relational databases, or you can have the ability to add partitions is really kind of to simplify it yeah. easily. Because if you think about it, when you're adding partitions, you're adding redundancy. Um, and so, you trade it's a trade-off right and so are you adding partitions for scalability and so when adding partitions makes a relational database too slow then what do you do so what you then do is you partition the data in the database to sql and no sql and again i did a whole bunch of work back 2011 2012 2013 i worked with mongodb i worked with redis and uh, one of the um, sort of key I don't know, books, I guess, would be seven databases in seven weeks. Um, and this tells 
uh, it's, it's still a very valid book, even though it's many years old. It tells like how you do that progression and really turned the light on for me because prior to that point, it was, oh, just scale out your SQL server or scale out your Oracle server, which still would work. But these NoSQL databases were providing much more uh, economical alternatives. Mm -hmm. And of course, I'm always trying to provide, you know, the best value to my customer. So if it wasn't a great value to like buy more, you know, um, licenses for SQL Server or for Oracle, rather you want to get a Mongo cluster up or a Redis cluster up, you could partition your data if that was possible, because there's always, there's cost to partitioning mm -hmm. your data and writing your application, sure. right? So, so I just found those trade-offs really, really fascinating. And of course, during that time, Cloud was launched, led by AWS. Microsoft had an offering, but they didn't really understand the market until a little bit later. So Amazon had an offering and they first started, it was really interesting. They started by just lift and shift with RDS at a pass level by taking SQL Server and actually making it run effectively in the cloud. That was how I got started mm -hmm. because my customers wanted to lift and shift and maybe go to an enterprise edition and run it on cloud scale servers. So once you have your data in the cloud, you still need to think about security and privacy and potentially compliance, depending on what industry you're in. On episode 71 and 72, I had a very, very long conversation with Mark Nunnenkoven about these topics. Uh, and we, we were talking about the Twitter hack and we were just talking about the tiering system and things that you would need to do in order to ensure that there were multiple layers of security when building your serverless applications. Yeah, and, and the tiering system is frustrating as is for a lot of users. Uh, a lot of it does have that. It's about reducing the, you know, if we use the AWS term, it's about reducing the blast radius. You don't want everyone in support to be able to blow up everything. Um, you know, and if you look at the, the Twitter hack was actually an interesting example. Somebody raised the question and said, why didn't uh, the president's account get hacked? Um, you know, why wasn't it used as part of this? And because it has additional protections around it. Um, because, you know, it's the leader of the free world, ostensibly. So you want to make sure that that's not the average, um, you know, temporary employee on a support contract being able to adjust that. So the, the tiering actually is a, is a strong play. Um, but also understanding, um, you know, that the uh, defense in depth is something we talk about a lot in security. And it gets kind of a bad rap, but essentially it means don't put all your eggs in one basket. So don't use one control to stop just one thing. Um, so you want to uh, do separation of duties. You want to have multiple controls to make sure that not everybody can uh, can do certain things. But you also want to uh, you know still maintain that good customer service. And I think that's where um, again it comes down to uh, a very pragmatic business decision. If you have two sprints to get something out the door. And you go, well, I'm going to build a proper admin tool, or you're just going to write a simple command that your team can run that will give them the access. You're just going to write a, a command that does the job. And you know what? In your head, you always say the same thing. You put it in your, in your ticket notes. You, know, you put it in your JIRA, and you say, we'll come back to this and fix it later. Later, later never happens. So most admin tools are this hack collection of stuff just to get the job done. And I totally get it from a business perspective. It makes sense. You need to go that route. But from a security and privacy perspective, you need to really um, think holistically. And I think this is a question I get asked on, uh, often. Actually, somebody just asked me this on my YouTube channel the other day. They said, I'm looking for a cybersecurity degree and I can't find one. Um, all I can find is information security. What, what's the deal? And I said, well, actually, what you're looking for is information security. In the 
uh, industry, and especially in the vendor space, we talk cybersecurity because that's uh, typically the uh, system security. So locking down your laptop, locking down your tablet, locking down your Lambda function, that's cybersecurity because we're taking some sort of cyber thing um, and applying security controls to it. Information security as an academic study, as a field of study in general, is looking at the flow of information as it transits through systems. Well, part of those systems are, are people, are the wetware, right? Or the fact that people print it out and go, uh, you know, and this is a big challenge with the work from home, as you said, well, like your home environment isn't necessarily secure. And you said, well, yeah, it has different risk models, but the fact that I can connect into my corporate system and download a bunch of stuff and then print it, um, that's information that still needs to be protected. So I think if you think information security, you tend to start to include these people and go, wait a minute, you know, Joe from support, we're paying him, you know, 15 bucks an hour, but he's got a mountain of student debt. He's never going to get out of it. That's a vulnerability that we need to address, not from locking it down, but like help that person out and make them feel included, make them feel, uh, you know, as part of the team so that they're not a risk when a cyber criminal rolls up with some cash and says, hey, let give me access to the support tools. So that's some really great advice from Mark, and I think he brings up some things that most of us probably don't think about when we're building applications uh, or when we're running and maintaining these applications. So just uh, good episodes, 71, 72, check them out. Really good information there. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. Epsigon enables teams to instantly simplify, visualize, and understand what's happening with their complex microservice architectures. With their comprehensive, lightweight auto instrumentation, users are able to eliminate the gaps in data and manual work associated with other APM solutions, providing significant reductions in issue detection, troubleshooting, and resolution times. Epsigon aggregates, unifies, analyzes, and correlates data from all the third-party tools you love, delivering a single pane of glass for understanding serverless, containers, Kubernetes, and more. Engineers now know when something is wrong and can immediately trace issues to root cause before they affect production. Increase developer efficiency and reduce application downtime with Epsigon. And as a special for Serverless Chats listeners, if you try out Epsigon and connect your first trace today, they'll hook you up with one of their awesome t-shirts. Check it out at epsigon.com slash serverlesschats. All right, so in episode 52, I spoke with Tim Wagner, and we went all the way back to the beginning of Lambda and sort of talked about the evolution. Um, and one of the evolutions that happened about that time was EFS integration, which was adding state to your Lambda functions. And I asked Tim whether or not state was an important thing that needed to be added to Lambda or to serverless, um, or if that was going to somehow you know, hold companies back if they weren't able to do stateful computing on Lambda and serverless functions. I have these two strong reactions to that statement, right? Like, like one of them is, I would say in some ways, the most successful thing Lambda has done is to challenge thinking, right? To get people to say, do you really need a server stood up, turned on, taking 20 minutes to, to, to fire up with, you know, a bazillion libraries on it. Uh, and then you have to keep that thing alive and in perfect condition for its entire life cycle in order to get something done in terms of a practical, you know, enterprise application. And, and challenging that assumption is one of the most, uh, one of the most exciting, important and, and successful things that I think Lambda and other serverless, app, uh, serverless offerings have, have accomplished in our industry. Uh, the flip side to this is, you know, to be useful, sometimes you have to be practical and, you know, and, and it's, it's equally true that you can't walk up to an enterprise and say, all right, 
Um, step one, let's 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 throw all your stuff away, and then step two, <laughs> right? Because they're not going to get past step one. You know, uh, like there is a. It's funny we talk we talk about greenfields, brownfields. You know, they, there's it's all brown in the enterprise. There's there's even if you write a net new lambda function, it's running against existing existing storage, existing data, existing APIs, whatever that is, right? Nothing is nothing is ever completely de novo. And so I think to be successful and be as adopted as possible in the long run, uh, serverless offerings are going to also have to be, they're going to have to be flexible. And I think you see this with things like provision capacity. I mean, we had, when I was at Lambda still, we had long, painful debates about, is this the right thing to do? <laughs> and, and, and for understandable reasons, because it is less stateless. It took the you know, it's it's obviously optional. We don't force anyone to use it, but um, but you know, by doing it, it makes Lambda look more like a conventional, uh, well, server container, conventional application approach because there is this piece that is a little bit stateful now. And I think the art here is for the serverless offerings to not lose their way. You know, to to find this this kind of middle ground that is useful enough to the enterprises that still challenges assumptions that gets people to write stuff in a way that is better than what came before, uh, but doesn't, and doesn't pander completely to just make it feel like a server, but, um, but is also practical and, and helps enterprises get their job, you know, get their job done instead of just telling them, you know, because, because just sermonizing to them is not, is also not the right way to do it. So I totally agree that telling companies they just have to change the way they build things and this is the way they need to do it now is probably not the best way to convince them to move over to serverless. So the more things that we can build in that makes that transition easier, I think is a very, very good thing. Now on episode number 78, I spoke with Roderick Rabba and I asked him if there were other things missing from serverless besides just state. Uh, and this is what he said. I think accessibility accessibility of the platform. And uh, I remember when I first met you, uh, right, we had this conversation about, we called it serverless bubble at the time. Uh, and maybe bubble isn't the right word because bubbles burst and that's not a good thing. Maybe echo chamber is better. Um, but, but I think one thing I've learned, and I learned this very early on when I left IBM and sort of went to a developer conference and said, yeah, there's this thing called serverless, it's the greatest thing. And it was like, what? Uh, what's a microservice? Uh, right, and sort of recognizing that the world hadn't yet caught on. There is part of you know the technology community that has, and sort of you know good good for them. But recognizing that there's still large interest in Kubernetes, there's still large interest in EC2 instances and VMs. There's a massive world out there where building applications for a cloud is still hard. Um, you know, just log on to the Amazon console and look at everything you can get. Where do you get started? Uh, right, so the opportunity for us is making the cloud more accessible. And so we like to think that, you know, from an developer perspective, you can create an account within 60 seconds. You can deploy your first project, uh, you know, not even having to install any tools right out of GitHub. And hey, I have stood up an entire application. It's got a front end, it's got a dedicated domain, uh, it's served from a CDN. My functions are entirely serverless, they scale. Um, I can have state. Um, I just did that, right? So it's about really making the cloud accessible for a large class of developers from the enterprise all the way to the indie developer who just has an idea for a mobile app or a website that they want to build. And I think this is where really the opportunity is, you know, whether you're running things in a container or an isolate like Cloudflare does, it comes an implementation detail nobody's going to care about in the future. I also think that the implementation details are probably not 
that important. What users are looking for, or at least what I'm looking for as a developer, is I'm just looking for an easy way to build applications and not have to worry about everything that's happening behind the scenes. Now on episodes 66 and 67, I had a long conversation with Austin Collins and he was telling us the story of the serverless framework. But I did ask him the question, you know, how do we convince people that serverless is the way? Uh, and it's just a potential that's democratized for everybody, whether you're a large organization or you're just a solo hacker, like in the basement or something, trying to get something off the ground like that. This power is democratized to everybody. And, you know, like going back to our mission, like, yeah, we want to help every single person build more, manage less, leverage higher levels of abstraction, help them focus on outcomes more than ever. We're going to try and rethink developer tools and what that means. Um, in order to deliver that experience. And then, you know, the last part for us is just, you know, we we firmly believe serverless is bigger than any one vendor at the end of the day. And it, it, we feel very strongly that there needs to be an application framework um, that provides an open level playing field for serverless cloud infrastructure across any vendors. Because yes, we've talked a lot about AWS and the majority of our users are using AWS and the majority of the infrastructure is AWS but not all of it, actually. They are still bringing out, you know, our, our users, our audience, very product focused. If you want to build the best products, you got to be free to use the best of breed services that are out there. And this is, um, and so we see a lot of people still bringing in Stripe, <laughs> still bringing in Algolia, right? Still bringing in, uh, you know, MongoDB Atlas, um, you know, all the Twilio, right? There's, there's so many great things out there. Um, and, you know, helping people, developers have this, again, this open framework where it treats all these things as neutral, this level playing field where they can compose uh, serverless infrastructure across any vendor into applications really, really easy. Feels like the destiny of the serverless framework to us. So the ability to democratize compute is amazing that anybody can join this community. Anybody can build applications and share what they do with the world is very, very, very powerful. And you don't need thousands and thousands of dollars now to get started. You can just be that solo hacker or, or you can be a small startup and you can make a huge difference. And that's another thing that came up this year. And I love having conversations with my guests, especially when they get really, really honest. And I spoke with Erica Windish and this was on episode episode number 58, and we were talking about open source and the power of open source, uh, and she said this. Um, from a perspective of open source developers, uh, though, my biggest issue is the culture. Every one of these open source projects or, you know, uh, you know pro projects, you know, however small or big that they are, because I think, you know, so things like Kubernetes, right, uh, are now multiple projects. You have things like Falco and um, and so forth that are sub projects or adjacent projects or you know <laughs> however you want to define them. Um, they are you know you have but you have a community here that operates a certain way. Uh, they have their own culture and that culture is different potentially than the culture that you as a a company founder or as HR or a manager or whoever, you know, of a company that is not necessarily the same culture that you want your co company to have or your team to have that is in the open source, right? And, and how do you kind of resolve the, like, th that difference? Because one of the other things is that a lot of people hire from these open source communities. So 
if you are building a team that is going to work in open source and you want to have, um, you know, you want to make this a diverse team, for instance, uh, but it's not a diverse project, you know, how, you know, how, how does that work, right? Is the project and the other people in that project, you know, going to discriminate against you either, you know, implicitly, explicitly, um, like it may not be intentional, right? Um, you know, there are implicit biases that exist. Um, and I think it becomes very difficult because when you have your own like closed source application and you're building things for your own self and your own teams, you have control over what you're building, how you're building the, and the, const the construction of your team, et cetera. And I think that you lose a lot of that when you're working in an open community, because if you're only working on open source, it's almost like while you're employed by one company, your coworkers are almost in a sense, a set of people that are not hired by your company that may not actually hold the same values that you or your company holds. And I don't have a solution for this, but it's something I think about a lot. Um, and it's one of the reasons I no longer really contribute much to open source. So the idea that a brilliant engineer like Erica would not want to participate in an open source community because of a toxic culture is just tragic. If you are in one of these communities, in 2021, we just have to do better, right? So if you see something, you know, call it out, call it out when you see it. Let's make sure that we can create these beautiful, diverse communities because that is what makes tech better. That is what makes us better. So I want to move on to something else, which I think is a common theme of serverless, or at least it's been a common theme for me. And this is the idea of complexity. And I feel like serverless continues to get more and more complex, and it probably has to. But I spoke with Guillermo Roche on episode number 50, and I asked him about the complexity of serverless. I think uh, what's amazing about serverless is that it's exposed, you know, the essential complexity of the problem. It, it, it stopped developers from sweeping, you know, hacks under the rug, right? So the best example that I think uh, from this is, you know, you can no longer do async computation as a result of invoking a function that easily anymore. You know, in, in the world of, uh, of Node.js, you, you, I, I, I would see a lot of customers just like put lots of state in a process when they respond they continue doing things behind the scenes in that same process. Functions have altogether made this impossible, but for a great reason, right? Like they're, they were exposing, hey, that side effect that you were computing, you should have not been doing in that same process. You should have used a primitive, like a queue, to put your side effect, you know, your event there, and then use other functions that respond to that event. And then it's so smart that they also put the, the developer into this speed of success of saying, well, if it's a side effect that now can no longer be retried by the client, right? Because the client is executing the function, the function is responding with 200 and it queued the side effect. So there's no reason for the client to retry. So now this side effect is loose in the universe of computation. And that means that we need a system that can retry it because we want that side effect to run to fruition, right? So now it forces you to put that into a queue. And queue can retry 
and then eventually also fail and go into a dead letter queue. So now just like going through all this in my head, I'm like going crazy about it, the amount of complexity. But here's the thing, and this is why I love serverless, that was to begin with the essential complexity that had to be managed to begin with. What we were doing before was chaos, was side effects that maybe sometimes run correctly and sometimes not, was you know unscalable systems and so on and so forth, but it is a complicated world. So it is a complicated world. And serverless has a lot of moving parts and a lot of things that you have to think about. But what Guillermo pointed out is that what it really has done is it, it has exposed the complexity by breaking out those little pieces that were sort of built in before, but not always reliable. And now we can add that reliability or that resiliency to our applications by having more control over some of these pieces. And on episode 40, I spoke with Eric Johnson and Alan Tan about HTTP APIs. And we were talking about some of these patterns, and in particular, this one called the storage first pattern, which helps us add resiliency. So even if we have bad code or our application fails down the line, we don't necessarily lose that data. The most dangerous part of an application that I'll ever build is my code, right? So when I build an application, you know, I, I want to get that data stored first. I, that's that's the thing. And and if it's in, I tend to go DynamoDB because that's what I like. That's what I use. But there's different purposes. I know uh, Jeremy, you and I have had this conversation before, and you're you're an SQS guy, so that's 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 where you tend to go. So and 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 we do this because we look at okay, what's the pattern for for you? I know for like the retry or the DLQ or different things like that. Uh, and for me, it's that it's because I'm going to continually write back to Dynamo on, on on the app. I'm specifically thinking about it. But the idea is if API Gateway can directly integrate with the storage, uh, be it S3, be it DynamoDB, something like that, then I've stored the data and I'm, I don't have to go back to the customer if my, if my logic fails, right? So, so in an application, I've stored the data. Let's say I'm using DynamoDB. I do a stream. It triggers a Lambda. I start processing that data. If somewhere in there something breaks, and again, it's it's going to be my code, uh, but let's say something breaks, then I don't have to go back to the customer and say, hey, guess what? I blew it. Can you can you, uh, you know, give me your data again? Can you resubmit that and continue to trust me because I'm sure I won't lose it again. You know, instead I've got that data stored and I can write in some retry or take advantage of the retry from, from an an SQS or an SNS or or something like that. Uh, And so I think it's, it's a really cool pattern for building resilience into our application. Serverless comes with a lot of resilience anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's how AWS has approached this on look as much as we'd like to say nothing ever breaks let's write as if it does right and so let's let's degrade gracefully and that's and i think this adds even another layer of that where i can degrade in my code and know hey i've still got the data i can write some retry logic i can use existing retry logic i think it's a safer pattern so and and it does require you know the storage versus the pattern i call it but it requires thinking asynchronously what can i do after i've responded to the client and how do i work with them So the storage first pattern is just one of probably a hundred different serverless patterns you can use to make your systems more resilient. And resiliency is a really, really important thing, especially when we're dealing with distributed systems. Now on episode 51, I had a conversation with Adrian Hornsby and we talked about all kinds of resiliency patterns that you can use in your application. But one really cool piece that we talked about was the difference between soft and hard TTLs in your cache? Um, so a, a soft 
time to live is kind of um, your requirement in terms of staleness, right? So you say you say uh, my let's say my Twitter trend list. Uh, I want to refresh it uh, every let's say every thirty seconds. So you give it a TTL of thirty seconds, a soft TTL of thirty seconds. So if my if my service requests the the cache and the TTL the soft TTL is expired and everything is fine, you go and query the service, right? But if my service doesn't answer at that moment, so you are you've passed the soft TTL, now your downstream service doesn't give you the data. What do you do? Do you return a 404, or you actually fall back and you say, all right. Um, my soft TTL is expired, but hey, I'm still within the hard TTL, which is a, hey, it's one hour, right? So, I, and then you say, okay, uh, you know, your service returns the hard TTL, and you say, oh, well, sorry, we just have one hour, uh, one hour old data uh, because we're experiencing issue. So, again, it's it's a possible degradation, and actually, quite often, cache. Uh, uh, could be used like this. I think it's uh, it's all about you know how you create your ash and uh, and things like this and how you define your eviction and uh, and policies and things like this. So this is another great resiliency pattern to add to your applications because when things are running fast and your downstream systems are working, you have this soft TTL in there that has the most up-to-date data. But if for some reason the systems start failing or you're having problems with those downstream systems, that longer term cache can still serve up data and provide at least some level of service to your customers, which is a really, really great way to think about it. Now, the cloud does a lot of things for you, right? So writing code, as, as Eric mentioned, you know, you could potentially write bad code. So why write code if you don't have to? So on episode number 48, I spoke with Lyndon Nichols, and we had this conversation about, you know, should you be writing these things yourself or should you rely on a service to do it? I just started thinking about the fact that if I was developing something for the cloud or just in general, if I start typing a lot, I pause and I go, okay, somebody's already written this. I'm not that clever. Uh, you know, not, not, you know, not really. There's a lot of smart people in the world. There are a lot of people that code all the time. So this is already done somewhere. It's either in a library or it's a service. And I talk to so many customers and people who, you know, uh, you know, they're like, oh, I, I, here's my great idea of a thing. And almost always I'm like, no, okay, so that is this, you know, and there's, and I mean, even like, you know, messaging systems, you know, like, you know, service bus on um, Azure. I mean, there are so many developers that have tried to write messaging systems and there are so many out there. There's so many people that have tried to write Kafka um, you know, and they still are there's, you know, and I, and sometimes I, I talk to people that are trying to create something and they will say, okay, well, I'm going to put this in a function, this in a function. And I'll say, no, you don't need functions here. This is already a service. You can already use something like logic apps. Like you don't have to write any code and, you know, you just kind of connect some things together or, you know, there's already built in services and that's still serverless, right? Like serverless is not just fast. Like you don't have to write hundred lambdas to be a serverless developer. 
So as Linda said, you don't have to write 100 Lambda functions to be a serverless developer. It's much more about knowing the ecosystem and understanding all the components that you can stitch together to build these applications. Now in episode 49, I spoke with Jared Short and we were talking about building with the cloud native mindset and just how do you do that? What do you have to do to build with the cloud native mindset and how do you get that right? It takes practice, right? It, you're giving up a lot of fundamental control that I think people are used to having. Right? I can't walk into my data center, open a rack and turn off or turn on a server or pull wires or things. That's, that's a huge fundamental shift for a lot of folks. And as we're migrating to people now, these days that have never even walked into you know, a rack of servers, um, we're, we're, we're having people that are coming out of college that, you know, AWS and going into EC2 and clicking launch instance is their concept of a, a server. Um, I, I think what we're starting to build towards in terms of the cloud native mindset is we, we fundamentally can trust these larger providers to provide good mostly good experiences, I'm going to be careful there, mostly good experiences around these cloud primitive services. Um, and we have S3, which, you know, has kind of been referred to as um, uh, one of the the seven or the seventh or eighth wonder of the world. Or whatever. It's like this modern marvel, right? That thing holds so much data and performs so well and is so scalable. Like when it goes down, the internet's just basically done. Um, that's, that's incredible that they have this service and we're, we're trusting it um, as cloud natives. We're trusting these providers. I don't care if it's Azure or GCP or anybody um, to provide these primitives that we can build on top of. And I think cloud natives look at those primitives and you have an implied level of trust and you're willing to build businesses and business value on top of them. And I think that's it's control and, and being able to trust somebody else with giving up that control so you can accelerate what you're willing and, and looking to build um, in terms of business value is more of a cloud native mindset than, than, than anything else. So giving up control can be a little bit scary, but as soon as you give that control to a third party service, not only does that speed up the development, but it also makes it much easier to maintain. And on episode 73, I spoke with Joe Emerson about this very idea and I said, well, if you're just optimizing for maintainability, why wouldn't you choose a third party service every time? I mean, in general, I do choose third party services for everything. I mean, my 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 general view is prove to me that this third party service won't work. Um, now, you know, again, I, I have a very strong difference though between a third party service that's serverless and one that isn't. Um, and so you can find third party services where they want you to go into like the AWS marketplace and run it on a VM, and that's not serverless, and I'm not interested in that. You know, or like, oh, it's an open source project, run it yourself. And again, I'm not interested in that. Um, and so, um, you know, but when it's serverless, when and, and my definition, my short definition of serverless is it's not my uptime. Uh, like I literally can't influence uptime. I mean, beyond I could like put bad configuration or bad code in. Um, but, you know, but but like if this if some server fails, like it's not on me to bring it back up. 
Um, and so I think if you can have a serverless third party uh, API, I think your default should be use that unless you can prove that you shouldn't use it. So this idea of not having to maintain another piece of your application and that it's somebody else's responsibility is a huge selling point for me right there, but also the idea that that application is going to get better over time. And that's what this serviceful movement does. So on episode number 80, I spoke with the Jay Nyer and we talked about why serviceful was such an important thing. Um. It just flat out, I think that is the biggest vector to speed that, that serverless brings to the table, right? Like the fact that you can cherry pick components of your customer or product by relying on other people's expertise, right? So going out there and saying, hey, I know Jeremy Daly, you have built this great chat service that has, and I trust you to offer me four nines availability and a certain performance guarantee. And as long as I use your API, I'm good. That the incentive for me to go and rebuild that uh, elsewhere is is negligible. Like it doesn't help my business to go and rely on 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 anything else. And I think what that basically does is you are now recruiting an entire collection of experts, of really deep domain experts, to be part of your operational team, to be part of your development team. Right? They are continuously improving their portion of that tiny little product. Uh, and making it better to move faster. The scale is getting better. The performance is getting better. The capabilities are getting better while you innovate on the part of the stack that you want to. And and what's fascinating for me is, uh, you know, that is the true uh, vision that we had all had when we went down microservices development as well, right? You can do independent development of different pieces. They're all, you know, small pieces loosely joined uh, that, that talk to each other and they can innovate separately. The only difference is this is not just your organization sitting and doing it, your two-person startup. You have now, you know, 22-person startups and AWS innovating on your behalf just to make your product better, right? Like your one millisecond example is a great one. Like if you were a startup who was running on us today, uh, and you happen to use Lambda for your backend compute, your bill just got 40% cheaper, which you can now pass on as end user savings with you doing nothing. Like imagine how much work you would have to do to go and that kind of get that that behavior over there. And and just one more thing, Jeremy, since you brought that up, I, I do believe the true power is going to be connecting all these SaaS services together and getting them to interconnect a lot more. Um, you're starting to see this with some of the bigger ones, right? So Twilio, uh, Workday, Atlassian, they've all added this programmable SaaS component to them, right? They've got these Lambda-based extensions that they're showing up, like Twilio functions and Netlify functions and others that allows them to add just a little bit of logic to them to then talk to other services via API calls um, and, and kind of build, build forward over there. So I think just the flexibility and power this enables is, is is really, really cool. And the fact that you can swap out one API for another is is a, quite a testament to the whole dance around, am I really locked into a particular provider or not? Because it's quite easy to change an API call more than anything else. <laughs> so the idea of being able to leverage another team's expertise uh, and incorporate that into your application is just huge, right? You don't have to be a search expert or an SMS expert or a uh, even a database expert or an ML expert. You can leverage somebody else's API to do that and that allows you to focus on your core business and what you can do to add value to your customers. So that is a hugely important piece of serverless, a huge selling point uh, and, and a big thing that at least for me has made it such a, sort of a, a transformative experience. 
All right, I wanna share one more clip with you, and this is from episode number 76 with Matt Coulter. Now, Matt is the one who created cdkpatterns.com, but the reason why he created that was to help a massive enterprise, um, or really to encourage a massive enterprise to adopt serverless. So here is his story about how he used that to help bring serverless into Liberty Mutual. Yeah, it's, so it helps that Liberty Mutual as a whole are, Liberty Mutual split up into different business segments. Um, so my seg segment, GRS, we call it Global Risk Solutions. Um, lucky I remembered that. Um, but uh, we're basically large commercial and specialist insurance. But our CIO actually made a mandate. He, he put down what our vision is as a company and where we want to go. And he wrote down that we want to be a serverless first company. So whenever you have buy-in from at the executive level to say we want to be serverless, it helps a long way. But the second part of it is I haven't mandated anything to any engineer who works anywhere. Because I've seen an awful lot of times where it doesn't matter how good your idea is. If, if you come in and you tell people, I think I know better than you, they just say no. So that's why that's why I started with CDK Patterns External, which is, given we haven't introduced it yet, an open source collection of serverless architecture patterns. And the idea was, if I could go external and say, here is a thing, here is an actual industry thing, here are all the AWS heroes that talk about the patterns that are in this, here's the links to all their blog posts, here's their articles, here is me talking about it in the world, and then go to them, conduct a well-architected review with their team, and instead of mandating it, just ask them, okay, I see you're trying to build this particular solution. Have you considered? And then at that point, because the thing already exists, it's already coded and they can pick up on it, I think you've reduced the barrier for them to go the direction you want to go rather than forcing them. So I love this story from Matt Coulter. I think it was a brilliant way to get his organization to adopt and embrace serverless um, without mandating it, but just showing that these patterns work really, really well um, and bring a tremendous amount of value. And that is what serverless can do for you. And I really, really hope that in 2021, if you are not, uh, if you are not embracing serverless yet, that you start looking at it. Because again, 50% of all applications being built on AWS are starting to use Lambda, which is pretty powerful. Okay, 2020, it's over. 2021, new year, all kinds of exciting things that are gonna happen with serverless chats uh, in 2021, as well as Off by None, uh, which is the newsletter that I do every week. So uh, we added a YouTube channel this year. So check out uh, youtube.com slash serverless chats. You can watch these videos on or watch all these interviews um, in a video format. And we'd love your feedback. We'd love you know different ways that we could present videos to you that you might enjoy. Um, also Off By None in the newsletter, uh, offbynone.io. It's a weekly newsletter that is all about serverless and things that are happening in the serverless ecosystem. Um, we encourage people to submit articles uh, and share their articles with the community. And we try to um, we try to uh, amplify as many voices as we possibly can. Uh, there are so many people to thank. First of all, I wanna 
thank all of my guests this year, so many amazing people that I had the opportunity to talk to. Uh, I learned so much this year from all of you. It was absolutely amazing. Uh, I have to thank our sponsors. We had so many sponsors this year. Um, they're the ones who have made this possible. We're trying to continue to get better every every episode, um, whether it's better cameras and better sound and uh, and, and better uh, you know better just everything, uh, better show notes. So we're working really hard to to do that, and our sponsors are the ones who help us do that. Um, I want to thank all the listeners, all of you who are who are listening to this every week um, or just you know listening to an episode here and there that you find interesting. Um, that's what this is about. These are supposed to be genuine conversations with, um, with people who are just really passionate about what we do. Um, and if there's value that you can take from that and that gives you some ideas or some inspiration, that's awesome. Go do that. Share those stories with us too because we love to hear um, the impact that we're having on, uh, on our listeners and, and on the community in general. Um, I also want to thank uh, Angela Milanazzo, who is the producer of this show. She does a lot of work behind the scenes that people don't often see. Um, so thank you very much to her and everything that she does. I want to thank Melissa DiLorenzo, who also helps with the newsletter uh, and with this show. Again, these things wouldn't happen if we didn't have this amazing team. So as we move into 2021, thank you all again. It's been an interesting year. Uh, definitely an interesting year for serverless. I'm hoping 2021 will be uh, a prosperous year for you all, that everyone will be safe and healthy. Uh, we'll move past this pandemic and, and, and get back to some semblance of normalcy. So I will see you in 2021. Uh, I hope you will, will join us. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. Sign up to be a serverless insider. Uh, we just sent out a whole bunch of swag to people. Um, serverlesschats.com. Uh, there will be show notes for this episode as well, serverlesschats.com slash 81. Thanks again, and we will see you in 2021. <laughs>